from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missouri Governor Mike Parson only has a couple more years in office. But as he made abundantly clear in this week's State of the State speech, the Republican chief executive doesn't plan to be idle. Missouri is stronger today, and we're going to continue what we've started because this governor isn't done yet. We are not done yet. On a special edition of Politically Speaking, Sarah Kellogg joins me to talk about Parsons' big speech and the general reaction to it. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Merzenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. And no guest today. This is an old school Politically Speaking where we're just going to be talking about stuff and primarily Governor Mike Parson's 2023 State of the State speech. Um, There's a lot to go over, a lot of things that could be very monumentally important for the state. Um, And I think we're going to split the show kind of in two parts. The first part, we're going to be talking about some of the big ticket things he announced. The second will be kind of like analyzing the, the generalized reaction to the speech, which I found to be very fascinating. Um, compared to other state of the state speeches. So let's launch right into it. I think if there was one thing about the state of the state speech that grabbed headlines from Kansas City to St. Louis and probably also Columbia, it was this announcement one. This year, we are requesting $859 million, the largest investment in decades to widen and rebuild I-70 corridor and take the first steps in adding a third lane across our state. I will tell all of you in this chamber this. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and the time is now. So there was a purposeful reason why I kept the applause in that clip. I've never seen such bipartisan, rapturous adoration of any proposal at any State of the State speech other than that. Were you surprised that that was well-received, Sarah? 
I mean, I'm not. I, I think we've heard over years that how much of I-70 is a problem in certain areas and how congested it needs, you know, it is and how it needs to be updated. As someone who drives I-70 frequently between Columbia, where I live, and St. Louis, where you all are and a lot of my family, you know, it can definitely get congested and it needs those improvements. So I'm not, this is something that making a road better is a pretty bipartisan thing. Now, I'm curious to see, you know, what the people who don't live along I-70 think of it. But I think that that's a pretty easy win is to add another lane in those areas of, of St. Louis, Columbia and Kansas City. One person who has been watching the transportation issue for a long time is Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe. He was a major figure in transportation issues even before he was elected to the Missouri Senate, our lieutenant governor. Um, here, his, here is his reaction to Parsons' announcement. So folks got to remember, I-70 was built. Uh, it was the first interstate project, and it was designed to have a 30-year life. It's approaching 65 years, and the traffic counts have more than quadrupled on it since its original design. So we're way behind there, and we want that corridor to stay open so that we can continue to uh, work on our economy. So I was monitoring social media, and one thing that was very noticeable to me is that there were a lot of people, and they were primarily people that lived in St. Louis or Kansas City, who were like, almost a billion dollars to widen a highway? That seems like a waste of money. Why are we throwing more money at highways rather than education or things like that? And I, I'm not naive. There is definitely a sentiment, especially in urban areas, that highways are bad and that we should really be focusing more on, like, public transit or, you know, bike lanes or making things more bike friendly. But do you think that that's a minority viewpoint across the state or do you think that ordinary people may be like, this really isn't worthwhile? You know, I think that's a good question. I think part of it is you have to consider whether or not you personally use I-70. It is still how a major hub of transportation when it comes to goods and services and trucks. I mean, I lose count of the number of trucks I pass on the highway. That's how a lot of stuff gets done. And so either whether or not you're using I-70, that doesn't mean that a lot of people aren't. Um, I'm curious, see, and, I, and I'm a little less you know, with the metro areas, I think those are good points. But I also am curious about like the people who live in northwest Missouri or the boot heel and wonder they don't see it as much either. You know, you wonder if you want improvements on 44 or, you know, other highways. So whether or not this will be the first of many. But I mean, this goes right through the state from one to another. I think that that's, you know, it makes sense that this would be an area that Parson wants to leave a legacy for for as long, you know, as far as transportation wise. And, and you know, one of the things both of us were in the budget hearing. And I think it was noticeable there wasn't a lot of talk about the federal infrastructure bill or how that was going to be spent in Missouri. But I imagine that that's, the money is eventually going to come, and it's in the billions of dollars. Is it possible that transportation issues could be a major theme for the next five state of the states because of that? I mean, I specifically asked about that infrastructure law because I was curious, you know, last year, you know, the American Rescue Plan Act was the big thing where it was how do we spend billions of dollars in ARPA funding, which was pretty much allocated. So my question was, well, is this year the infrastructure dollar year? Looks like no. But, uh, you know, between roads, bridges, water infrastructure, I know they said there were some things on water infrastructure that they were going to be able to use that money for this year. But, you know, railways, broadband, I feel like that's definitely, you know, while we're getting these dollars, I definitely think that'll be something that you know, the future governor, whether it be Parson next year or whoever's next, you know, can seize on and use. I also noticed there was a lot of education uh, focuses. The, the fact is the, the foundation formula is going to be fully funded again. School transportation funding is going to be fully funded again. 
There's an increase to higher education institutions. And also this clip, I think, caught uh, your attention, Sarah, about a program known as Career Ladder. Last year in working with the General Assembly, we funded Career Ladder program. Nearly 140 school districts participated and over 11,000 veteran school teachers received an increase in pay. This year, we are again funding the program with an additional $32 million to continue the state's part and benefit more teachers. I noticed, Sarah, when I was in Jefferson City, you took a particular interest to this issue. So I thought it would be worthwhile for you to explain to our listeners what this means and kind of what it means in the grand scheme of things for teacher pay. Yeah. So Career Ladder, again, was proposed last year, as the governor said, and was passed. And what it does is it's an optional program where, like he said, experienced teachers, so not incoming teachers, they have to have a couple years under their belts. Um, They would get more money for doing additional work, such as uh, maybe workshops or coaching a school team, you know, things like that. They, for additional work, they would get paid. Again, it's an optional program. And it's great for experienced teachers. But last year, you know, Parson really touted an increase in baseline incoming teacher pay. And that was a, another optional program, a grant program to raise the minimum to 38000 Now, teacher pay has been repeated, both Democrats, uh, really with Democrats, but also Republicans on how, you know, we need to pay teachers more. And, you know, it was interesting for me to ask, yes, career ladder, but what about, you know, raising that floor again? Maybe the right now the constitutionally you know, minimum pay or the, you know, the minimum pay for teachers is still 25000 in Missouri. So it's still super low. So there could be schools that don't participate in that program and they're still paying their teachers lower. And so I was curious of whether or not they were going to, you know, try to raise that floor again. And, and, and the answer I got was, well, that's kind of a local spending decision and they have these resources if they want to. Um, so that was my, you know, that was interesting to me to hear on, on education. Now, it's interesting to juxtapose all of the things I just mentioned in that previous question about K-12 through education. And it almost seems like Parson is operating in a completely different universe than the main sources of education discussion in the legislature, which centers around Parents' Bill of Rights, going after certain diversity curriculum, talking about how transgender girls can't play girls' sports. And that was noticed by Democratic House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid during her press conference. I hope that the General Assembly takes note, that they listen to what the governor has outlined and not continue to dive into the culture war issues that seem to be their priority pieces of legislation making the headlines. While the governor is talking about investments, our colleagues in this building are talking about censorship. While the governor is talking about taking care of our families, our colleagues are focusing on extremes and division. Despite these mistaken political talking points that seem to be the legislative priorities for folks in this building, I am hopeful that the governor seems ready to focus on the things that unify rather than divide. Is it possible that a lot of the things that Parson talked about in his speech in the realm of K through 12 education funding could get overshadowed by some of the things that Quaid just talked about? I mean, ultimately, Parsons' speech is a budget speech. And so it's really easy to say, you know, I want to spend this amount of money. You know, when you have a lot of money in the state, it's pretty easy to pass, you know, or propose proposals that are going to help you know, kids, that's a pretty bipartisan thing. But to be clear, Parson didn't, you know, talk about any policies. You know, again, it was a budget speech. So you weren't going to see those policy discussions, even though, you know, there might be a disconnect in what Parson is proposing and the bills that 
uh, Representative Quaid is talking about, that doesn't mean he won't sign them if they come to his desk. And so it, I think it's part of a bit of a disconnect of what this speech is supposed to be and maybe what, you know, what the issues are that are being talked about right now. But, you know, it's, you know, it's early in session. There was one large scale issue universe that Parson did talk about that in more than just a budgetary term. And that was aiding child care centers and improving access to early childhood education. This is a longer clip, but I want to make sure that it's in context. So this is what Parson had to say about that general subject area. We're proposing three new child care tax credit programs. These programs will help improve child care facilities, support employers who support their workers with child care assistance, and allow more of our dedicated child care workers to earn a pay increase. We're also investing more than $78 million to increase child care subsidy rates to child care providers across the state. Together, these actions, these actions will help more child care providers to start their businesses, stay in business, or expand their businesses. But we're not stopping there. Missouri's own Susan Blow established the first public kindergarten right here in the state of Missouri. And we want to expand on those efforts started so long ago. This year, we are here to announce our plan to invest $56 million to begin expanding pre-kindergarten pre options to all low-income Missouri children. So this is a topic I actually have firsthand experience with. I have one child who goes to a daycare center and another that goes to a pre-K uh, public school program. And um, it, they, they are fairly expensive. I mean, we are paying basically college tuition for them to be at these two places. So I, I think that it, it, this is an issue that a lot of ordinary Missourians are probably thinking about every day. Uh, what, what did you kind of make of this speech, a part of the speech, Sarah? Well, I'm going to uno reverse because I definitely think this impacts you, you know, a lot more than it impacts me who, who doesn't have any children yet. But I think the biggest takeaway of this is it shows that this is an area that I, I one, I kind of missed as far as my pre-reporting of what the session is going to be. I didn't talk about childcare a lot. And immediately after day one, I was like, oh, I should have talked about childcare a lot more because Republicans and Democrats, this is an area where they see a lot of, uh, you know, it's a workforce, like Parson said, it's a workforce development thing. And it's something that the pandemic really exacerbated. It was like, yes, we knew childcare was was something that needed, but wow, did the pandemic really emphasize that. And so I think this is kind of one of those results of the pandemic is saying, oh, we need people to go back to work while well, they're working from home and their kids there. Well, that's free. You know, they don't have to worry about childcare. So that's an incentive, you know, I feel like businesses would support in order to bring people into the workforce. And that's, you know, that's been definitely a problem. And so for me, I think it's showing a really unification about this is something that needs to be addressed uh, now, what that looks like whether that is the money that Parson wants, whether I know one of the proposals was maybe a 
you know, upping the limit of how big a preschool class could be. You know, there's been things kind of thrown around. around so I'm curious as to like what that looks like. But I think to me, chosen unification, I'm curious what you think about it, you know, as someone who would be impacted by that. I, I don't know if I would be impacted by the pre-K because none of my kids qualify for free and reduced lunch. Now, I know that House Minority Leader Quaid talked about making preschool available to everybody, so including my kids. What would that mean if I had an extra $800 a month to spend? I mean, we would probably like put a lot of that money in savings. We'd probably put some of that in retirement. We'd probably like fix part of our house that needs to be fixed. Like it would be a pretty big deal for our family if that type of thing was quote unquote free. But one of the things that I kind of noticed because I was watching the legislative reaction to some of these proposals. As I mentioned, everybody was excited about I-70. I think I think everybody was was enthused about fully funding a K through 12 education, including Republicans. What I noticed is that a lot of Republicans were not enthused about this part. And so I went and talked with Senator Bill Eigel, a Republican from Weldon Spring, because I suspected he was one of those people who found this particular portion of the speech lacking, and my assumption was correct. There are a lot of priorities that I'd like to see moved in the realm of education. I'd like to talk about empowering parents, expanding school choice, but I don't know if uh, expanding government-run schools to an earlier age is necessarily the answer to getting better outcomes. You know, we're going to spend more money to bring these children into the system sooner, but the reality is the outcomes we're seeing in our K-12 institutions right now are not even close to where we need them to be. Now, whatever you think about what Eigel just said, that is a real sentiment that is embedded in a fairly significant portion of the Missouri Republican Legislative Caucus. The big question is, is that a minority opinion that is just going to get bowled over? Or is that going to be something that actually affects the outcome of this? I mean, I think you can look to last year's budget, which was also a lot of spending. And the then now disbanded, but then conservative caucus was very unhappy with all of that spending. And when we got to basically what was the conference committee between the Senate and the House, a lot of those big ticket items, that expenditures, some of them were cut. They were put right back in. And so I think with uh, Senator Huff as the budget chair, I think that a lot of things, you know, that are going to be kind of more middle of the road. He's Springfield. He's definitely more of a moderate. I think a lot of these things are probably going to have serious conversations. And I don't know how much that minority opinion is going to do. Didn't really do a lot last year. State Auditor Scott Fitzpatrick, who is by no means like a not a fiscal conservative, like his record. I know that that is kind of subjective, but I think his record kind of speaks for itself on that. He was actually pretty, pretty uh positive about this idea and he explained why in this clip when we fully funded the foundation formula that triggered the first expansion of of early educate early childhood education and so taking it to the next step i think makes sense making it more accessible to more people um and it's you know it, we have a really big workforce problem i think in the country and a lot of that can be tied to people needing to take care of their kids uh and that there's an sh- opportunity for them to start getting educated in an earlier age that creates more opportunities for workforce development. So I think it's I think that one in particular is good. Uh, that type of comment. Now, now, State Auditor Fitzpatrick doesn't have a vote in this. He's not a legislator anymore. 
But I, I have to imagine that a lot of Republican legislators kind of feel the same way as, as he does. And when you combine that with Democratic support for these types of proposals, it does seem like there will be critical mass for this just based off of legislative arithmetic. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I agree. Uh, I, I could end it right there. But I, I think that, you know, this is an area, like I said earlier, this was something that was brought up by both parties pretty unprompted. I mean, we talked to uh, Senate Majority Floor Leader John Patterson on the show weeks ago, and he said he thinks this is something that was not talked about at the beginning of session. And I think he was right. That's going to be a big deal at the end. And so I think that between House leadership and Senate, you know, looking at this, I mean, obviously, whether or not it's exactly Parsons plan, like I said before, that remains to be seen. But I think childcare will be addressed this session, whether it is through the budget or through other legislation. Now, I do have to bring this point up. And we're going to talk a little bit about this after the break. But like if there is a major economic recession and the money like tsunami that Missouri has experienced dries up, are, are, are proposals like what Parson is talking about, especially with early childhood education, going to be sustainable without some sort of like permanent funding source? especially if you're talking about expanding it beyond low-income low kids. I think that's a real concern that I don't think was really addressed in his speech. Well, I mean, I think you have to, you know, we were at the budgetary hearing before the speech happened with Dan Hogg, who's with the Office of Administration. And, you know, I think he said in part was, okay, well, we went through economic downturn because of the pandemic. And then we have had increase in revenue pretty much ever since. And now you can say, yeah, obviously, federal funding, you know, going to states aided with that. But a lot of times now it's a, we have billions in, in of surplus in our state funding and our economy is continuing to grow, according to the Office of Administration and, and budgetary forecasts. And I don't think they would feel as the, the Republican administration, I don't know if they would feel comfortable proposing something that they didn't think they could continue for years on end. So it, obviously predictions it's hard to predict the economy but you know i i think if anyone's going to be pretty cautious about that it's you know people who want to do a tax cut and then do continuing spending you know i think that if they feel comfortable doing it they definitely have triple checked the numbers we'll be right back after this break with more analysis of governor mike parsons 2023 state of the state speech and we're back on politically speaking Talking about Governor Mike Parsons' 2023 State of the State speech, I'm Jason Rosenbaum. I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Kellogg. And at the risk of doing the whole, I've been doing this for 17 years, shtick. Oh, go ahead. You know more than me. Go. <laughs> uh, I'm old man Rosenbaum talking about, you know, the distant 2000s-era Missouri legislature. This was an unusual State of the State because in most state of the state addresses, the governor says something and then the opposite party is like, well, we think what the governor said was terrible and we could do a lot better. This was not the case here. And I, I think you could listen to this clip from Quaid that I think summed up the Democratic reaction to most of Parson's speech. I'll be the first, I pointed out earlier that I was actually the first one to stand up in the entire speech. Um, and and our, our entire caucus stood up more than the other side. And that's absolutely true. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful that we are in a time, even in the super minority, to be able to stand up with the governor of our state so many times. Um, but to answer your question, yes, I think this is the most that we've ever stood up for a state of the state. Uh, because quite truthfully, I feel like he took a lot of the budget priorities that we've been 
fighting for for so long and wrote the budget with it. And you know, while there's, we're not going to agree on everything as we dive into it, we are very happy with the starting point. As someone who is just predisposed to the two parties just going to war with each other constantly, this was very disorienting, Sarah. Was it disorienting for you as well? I think it was a little less because you were on your leave for last state of the state speech. This really built on that. This is kind of the second year in a row where the governor has been able to throw this money at these really big priorities that Democrats agree with. I mean, last year, the big one obviously was teacher pay. That was something that was very much supported by Democrats. And so some of these issues, you know, I think that they had a lot to be excited about as far as priorities for them, you know, child care, teacher pay, uh, maternal mortality rate was a big one that they were so excited to hear about because that was something they've been talking about for a while. And so I, I think a little bit of less of a whiplash for me just because it is kind of just this building, you know, I feel like it's a lot easier to make everybody happy when you have a lot more money, you know? I think that Quaid had an interesting theory about why Republicans like Parson and also legislative leaders are putting some ideas that Democrats find agreeable forward. And here is that theory in this clip. And quite frankly, I think a lot of that goes back to the overturning of Roe. And we saw on the doors all over the state and all over the country that people were frustrated by that change. And so now we're seeing our, our colleagues on the other side of the aisle swoop around with more family support programs and actually help with, with pregnancy and help with the care of children afterwards. Again, things that we've been asking for for a very long time, but we have seen a shift. Um, now, how, how that plays out with the legislature, you know, I hope that we can continue with those issues, you know, because those are things that we care about. Um, of course, that doesn't solve the overarching problem for our caucus, but um, I do believe that there has has been a shift. Now, we can't read into the hearts and minds and souls of Republican legislators, but what do you think about Quaid's theory? I think it's really hard to determine, you know, why. I think one easy answer, I feel like, is yes, just more money. But I think that it is hard to kind of determine why exactly these are the priorities. I think she makes a really interesting point. I know there have been some bills that have stemmed definitely as a result of of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and Missouri's abortion ban, uh, there has been at least one bill that I saw that would create a tax credit for someone who's pregnant. So, you know, there is definitely been some legislation as a response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But, you know, I'm curious as to see how much of the budget, you know, is a result of that. So I played a clip from Senator Eigel earlier about his misgivings about the early childhood education money. And I think it played into a deeper dissatisfaction with what a lot of Parson speech actually was. And here's kind of him summing it up. I suspect if there is any resistance, it will come from his own party based on just the reactions I saw on some of my Democratic colleagues. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, of all the things that we've done over the past six years while I've been in the Senate, expanding the budget and expanding government, unfortunately, has been one of the most aggressive things we've done. We've gone about. So uh, I, I constantly make the point that we have increased the size of our budget in the six years of supermajority Republican control than in most of all the years that we've had a Democrat in the governor's mansion. Parson, I think, made some reference to the fact that Washington, D.C. is out of control with these crazy Democrats spending all this money. But it does seem like Eigel has a point that a lot of Parson's priorities require and need a lot of additional spending that did not happen in the past. And it seems like Parson is kind of like a big spending governor for the, for the person who is just kind of like walking into this blind. Uh, what do you think about that? 
I mean, I would like to see it compared to other states. Like, is this anything that's out of line with other Republican states that are spending right now because of this influx of American Rescue Plan Act dollars or federal funding, you know, stimulating the economy? I want to see how different Missouri is kind of before really getting an answer to that. I mean, I think that the other question is, then what do you want to do with the money? We have this money. Just sit, sit, sit in a pile. You know, I'm just curious as like what Eigel's response would be to that. I'm, I'm maybe maybe another tax cut, eliminate parts for property tax. But I'm curious, like, OK, do we just burn it? You know, like, what do you I, I think? It, I, I think you've you know? a, I think you've actually established like a legitimate conundrum for a lot of Republicans. So you have all of this money. OK. And because of the state constitution, you can't really invest it in a way that's going to make a huge amount of money. You can't put it in crypto, which you shouldn't do anyways for a lot of reasons. But my point is, like, if you don't do anything with it and you have a state of Missouri where large sections of it, both in urban and rural areas, look abandoned and have massive amounts of infrastructure problems and massive amounts of poverty, people are going to genuinely be like, OK, you have all this money. Why aren't you spending it on things? So I, I, mean, I could see both sides of it. I could see why that is antithetical to the typical Republican ethos, because Republicans typically don't like governmental spending. But what else do you do besides just let this accumulate minimal interest, basically? Yeah, I mean, to, to, to jump from that point, too, I mean, think about like the staffing shortages within the state government. You know, we haven't talked about, you know, Governor Parson wants an 8.7 percent cost of living increase, an additional two dollars an hour for certain workers that are working overnight or late night shifts. And he said it's not to be he doesn't mean to basically usurp the private industry. He just wants to be competitive with the market because people are not taking state government jobs. And this is a way to do that. So it's yeah, exactly. You're seeing these areas of need. And then, like, what do you do with it? Money. I think Senator Rizzo said last week before the state of the state, like money can't solve all of the problems, but money can solve the money problems. And there's the money problems in Missouri that this can go towards. In the last part of Parson's speech, I really felt he was trying to do a lot of legacy building. He's He can't run again in 2024. He's probably not going to run for anything else. Like, I think he's pretty much established that this is kind of the top for him, which Let's be clear, being governor of Missouri is an amazing political opportunity. But I I wanted to play this clip and then use it to ask a couple more questions. These children are the why. If we're not willing to sacrifice for these kids, support their dreams, or stand up for their future, then we must ask ourselves, why are we here? The First Lady and I have always believed and supported the American dream. And as we enter the final two years of our time as governor and first lady, the importance of that mission becomes all the more clear. Like us, the American dream should be achieved for all, never the exception for some. I think by any objective measure, even if you hate Parson on some of his political beliefs, there's no question that when he leaves office in 2025, He is going to be remembered as a consequential governor. Do you think that some of the things he's proposed over the last two years is going to be consequential in a good way, consequential in a bad way, or consequential in kind of a muddled, mixed, unclear way? I know there's a lot of paths that question can go, Sarah, but I'd be interested in your your take on that. That's a difficult question, Jason. I think that, you know, I think a lot of things... I think it's fair to assess that, yeah, he is proposing legacy things. I mean, a lot of things he's going to propose 
are not even maybe even going to get started until after he's left office. I-70 alone, you know, we asked about that. I think the planning period is going to be a year and a half. There he goes. You know, he's gone at that point. So whether or not, I think that there are some things that definitely you'll see. I think the budget alone is probably enough to build a legacy. I think that for a lot of it, if if some of these investments stick, I think they could be fairly popular, you know, parts of that. I think I am also curious, you know, I wrote about this a lot about uh, not related to budget, but all of his appointments. He's made five appointments and like that could be nitty gritty, but like there's definitely careers that he has elevated. Now, U.S. Senator Schmidt being one of them. So I'm curious to see kind of how the you know policies and how these people that he's helped bring up whether through appointments you know how they will impact missouri from years to come so i don't know i think it's an interesting question i want to know your thoughts on that Uh, well he also will be appointing two more missouri supreme court judges before he leaves which i think will also be hugely consequential i i think that i think that any gubernatorial legacy is always complex and will always have pluses and minuses like you could point to all of these things that Parson put money toward, and a lot of people are going to say that's a positive. You could point to the way he handled COVID, and depending on your point of view, it's either the right way or it was not not aggressive enough. I mean, it, it, I mean that's another part of his legacy. I, I mean, again, I talk in often hyperbolic terms on the show. I really think Parson is probably the most consequential governor of my lifetime in Missouri. I think it was probably going to happen regardless if it was governor because you had a Republican governor and a Republican supermajority. This could have been Eric Greitens' legacy if he didn't have all of his myriad of personal issues, by the way. Like, this could have been what Eric Greitens did by the way. You also have to think of circumstances, too. Like any governor who's going to be the governor over the COVID years in every state might right. be considered one of the most consequential. Some of it is just circumstances that he could, couldn't control, you know? So it's curious kind of what also what you do with an inherited situation or what you're doing when you can't control something and how you respond is also important to note. As a final thought, I mentioned the 2000s era of Missouri politics because I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, there really aren't that many people that served in the legislature in the 2000s that are still relevant now. You have Parson. You have Congressman Jason Smith, who's now like one of the most powerful members of Congress in America, which today is still mind blowing to me. He's only four years older than I am. He used to sit behind me and watch Supreme Court cases. And now this man has unbelievable power over tax policy. That's trippy, Sarah. Like, that is a trippy thing. And you <laughs> you have Schmidt, you have Tashara Jones, Sam Page, Blaine Luke DeMeyer. Um, it, I think that's really a, a consequence of term limits. Like, term limits have really limited the advancement opportunity of people in the legislature, except for a very select few people. And I can guarantee you that people who watch the 2000s era Missouri legislature, if you had taken a time machine, go back to 2007 and say, Mike Parson, that state rep from Polk County, he is going to become the most consequential governor of the last 30 or 40 years. I don't even think Mike Parson would have agreed with that assessment. But you know what? This is why it's fun to follow Missouri politics over a long period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Sarah, it is always a pleasure to talk about uh, Missouri politics and the state of the state speech. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And you can follow all of our coverage at stlpr.org. Until next time, so long.
from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.